So welcome to another episode of MOSOF's APIs and IPAs podcast network. I'm Derek Gilling here, your host today and the CEO of MOSOF, the API observability platform. Joining me is Mike Emerson, well-known author and speaker. He started the API Academy and was one of the first to be in the APIs over 20 years ago. He currently consults with companies to help them capitalize on APIs, microservices, and digital transformation opportunities. Happy to have you uh, here today. It's great to be with you, Garrick. It's uh, great to talk with you. Awesome. You've been you know, doing APIs for uh, quite some time since discovering Roy Fielding's uh, PhD uh, dissertation, introducing Rust. What's the biggest changes in the last 20 years and how did you get into APIs? Well, yeah, so there, there's, there's a lot packed into that question. First, I should say, actually, I didn't by myself start API Academy. I want to make sure that I give shout out to Matt McCarty and uh, Ronnie Mitra. Those, the three of us were the initial sort of like founders of that group and they, they had a lot to do with its, uh, its initial design and success. So I want to, want to shout out to them. And the Academy is just um, sort of one of the steps along the way that I've experienced in this whole API world. And you sort of reference to uh, some of the earliest stuff that I had done. Um, I had been working to, to go right to your question about fielding. I had been working on uh, creating systems uh, that were based on the web. I had been doing that beforehand using Microsoft tools, using SOAP services and remote procedures and all these other things um, initially. And things were working great, uh, things were going fine, but I was having scaling problems. I was literally working on an early uh, sort of uh, software as a service type implementation just wasn't able to scale the way I wanted. So I was looking around and searching desperately to find something. And uh, I stumbled on uh, Fielding's dissertation. As Fielding had written it in like 2000, he'd initially written an article and showed some stuff to Microsoft in 98. I didn't come to it until about 2003, 2004, something like that, when it finally uh, arrived on my door, kind of, so to speak. And it was helping me solve my immediate problems, which had to do with scale at first and then eventually had to do with customization. So the way I found Fielding was out of desperation and I reached <laughs> for him. He solved some problems for me initially. And then as I read more and more, you know, you're reading a 175 page PhD dissertation. I don't have a PhD. I don't even have a degrees in computing. So it was a challenge for me. Um, but as I read more and more, it started to make more and more sense. And I was able to start to experiment and more and more of what he talked about helped solve my immediate problems. So that's really how I got to the, to the fielding space. I was looking for solutions. It helped me solve some problems and then taught me more about how to look for ways to solve other scaling and customization problems. Those are really the two big ones in my life. So. Cool, I know, really glad to hear. And you know, there's a lot of uh, new things happening within the API space, both on the business side and also engineering. But what does it mean to be API first there's also the term API driven. What are the differences there? Yeah, there's there, again, lots, lots and stuff there. So um, to start with that whole API first notion, um, I mentioned this in, in the book that I, I just completed, Design and Build Great Web APIs. I first learned about API first from um, uh, Kaz Thomas. Kaz Thomas uh, was writing about the notion of, uh, when you're, you're thinking about the interface first, you're solving problems for people, understand who those people are, what their problems are, that's gonna help you build the interface. And if I remember correctly at that time, Cass was not really talking about web APIs the way we think of them. He was really thinking about you know, the interface for a class library, for functions, for, for modules, for things that you would give developers, right? So he was also, I think really, thinking about developer first. He was thinking about this idea that it's the developers that you're trying to help solve problems for. Um, now the other API first version that I use quite often that I think uh, a lot more people are familiar with uh, comes from Ken Lane, uh, API evangelist. I think Ken was just recently on, on this podcast, right? So um, I think you've talked to Ken about this already, but the notion that um, before you go building an app, before you go building a website, before you go building a module, build the interface, establish what the interface is going to do. What are the problems it's solving? What are the data you're sending? What are the data it's passing? And then once you have that API first, that is a foundational element, you can tack on things like mobile apps or web apps or desktop apps along the way without a lot of disruption because they're all acting on that interface. So I think those are sort of the two versions that come quickly to mind to me. Then both of them to me relate to that notion of 
know your audience, know your target audience, know what their problems are. That's what you're solving. It's sort of the reverse of you build it and they will come. Instead, understand their problems, build a great product for them. And I think that's really a great way to think about API first for me. And for the organizations out there that are, you know, thinking about deploying or, or migrating towards an API first strategy, do you have any tips for them on, on how to think about that, especially if they're, they're still new to the, the idea? Yeah, um, pretty much. Yeah, the, the, the tip is actually focus on the audience more than anything else. Focus on the target audience. The way I talk to folks is um, if you're solving uh, their problems, they're going to love your product. They're going to love your API. Now, who they are is super important. Um, if it's uh, developers inside your own organization who understand your object model and your business model and all have computer science degrees, you're gonna design that API very different than at somebody outside your organization that works in the, the field of maybe HR or you know, whatever the, the products or goods that they're selling. They're gonna have a very different set of problems, a very different set of understandings. So you're gonna solve their problems, right? And I think that's a really important element. A lot of organizations think about APIs in levels. They think of them as sort of like foundational, middleware, and user interface. We've been taught that over a long period of time. And that works only so far. Um, there, uh, as, as, long as, as long as that holds true, that means you have three different audiences, right? The audience are the, are the foundational team, the middleware team, and the UI team. But when teams have to solve all of those things, which sometimes they, they, often, you know, they often do, they have to have a UI and middleware and they're in charge of data, then the APIs are gonna look different. So knowing your audience, start with your audience. And I think that's, that's super, super important. Um, I'll volunteer something else that I've just really started to think about. Um, I recently read an article in the uh, ACM uh, uh, Computer Machinery Association of Computing Machinery, an article about an uh, uh, interview with Werner Vogels, who's really considered sort of the, the architect or the, the, the master of the AWS section of Amazon's web services. And he had this great uh, insight that they started with early on. He said their goal was to build tools, not platforms, which I thought was really an insightful remark. So this is a challenge when I talk to enterprise companies. They sort of want it, they want this notion of, we want a platform of services. We want a platform of plug and play elements. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to want. But when you're building it, you don't build the platform first, you build the tools and you make the tools part of a set of interactive bits and the platform emerges. And I think that's another piece of advice that I would pass on to any enterprise, especially if you're building sort of internally, build the tools people want Make sure the tools can interact. You'll get your platform along the way. Don't try to build a platform first because you have to make too many decisions in the dark. So I think build tools, not platforms, is going to be one of my new mantras. Well, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I, I love it. I mean, looking at building for a single use case for this API versus, you know, okay, what does this entire platform do? Well, it looks like just a, a mix of a bunch of different things, but it doesn't really solve a single use case for me. Uh, but this also brings up a different point, you know, for organizations you know, that are structuring new API teams, how do you set that up? Is it one single platform team? Is it a bunch of individual product focused teams? Yeah, that's, that's really good. And I wish I was better at this. Um, my buddy, Ronnie Meacher, who I mentioned, who was one of the co-founders of the Academy, does this really well. He talks a lot about teams. He's got a great talk called Programming the People Platform. And it's really this notion of understanding how people interact. And this goes to the Mel Conway thing about you, you, your, your software you know, reflects the organization you have and all of these other elements. But what I, what I think is a really important way to think about it is um, you want to figure out what your current team is doing and, and help solve those problems first. Uh, don't, don't think too far ahead. Don't try to organize or engineer too much about what your new teams are going to be. One of the things that's really commonly spoken about is something called the reverse Conway, where you sort of say, well, I want, um, I want this kind of software. So let me just go ahead and create teams. That's the new team to do this job. Teaming is, is actually a pretty, pretty difficult step. Most of us are in this IT business. We're great at hardware. We're great at software. 
we're not so good at wetware. We're not so good at people, <laughs> right? I kind of got into this business because I wasn't so good at people. That, that was me. So um, I try not to get too crazy about trying to engineer people, right? I try to figure out what's your problem? What are you going to do? So as you're beginning this process, just keep focusing on the problem at hand. What's right up in front? I think, you know, anybody who's, who's running a business, whether you're at the startup stage or whether you're, you know, somewhere in the middle or you're some kind of maturity, uh, you know, organization, focusing on the problem at hand is, is usually most of the challenge, most of the problem. And as you get large enough and mature enough, you can start to change your horizon. Like you can move that horizon out a ways. I don't know if this is what this is like for you. You guys have been at this for a while. You've probably experienced some of these same things. Um, but I think focus on what your problem is, get the team you need at the time. One of the things I've learned from uh, working with startups is often when you're at different stages of the organization, you hire different people because at this stage, I need somebody who's really good at engineering. At this stage, I need somebody who's really good at product management. At this stage, I need somebody who's really good at growth management. Like you hire different people. So your teams will change. So don't try to do too much engineering of your, of your people in order to fit software because that, that set of problems will keep changing all the time. I don't know if that comes close to what we were originally talking about. <laughs> that's sort of, in, that's what's in my head right now. <laughs> well, definitely a really important thing. And especially when it comes to engineering, you can't over-engineer stuff, right? Especially at the yeah. startup stage. Yeah, yeah. And that goes, that goes to that sort of tools, not platforms, right? It's sort of the same deal. Don't get too excited. Just get it the minimum viable product working again. That's another AWS thing that I think is so incredible. They, uh, all the way back to S3 buckets, right? They really created the super simplest thing just to see if anybody was interested and to see if it would work. And then they built on that. It goes to that, that old adage, uh, complex systems that work are proven to have started from simple systems that work. If you build a complex system, you'll never get it to work, right? You always start from a simple system. So I think that, I think that runs through the whole experience of business product, IT, engineering, everything. And you know, if I'm starting an API first coming today, what is those components that I really need to just get that MVP out the door? Do I need the billing gateways? There's a lot of different tooling out there. Oh, that's, that's, that's so good. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm working with some companies now and they're, they're struggling with the same thing. So I'm working with a company. They've been engineering for quite a while. Their, their product has been proven a few times, but now they want to level up. They want to like SAS up, right? So all this pricing and billing management and user management is sort of hitting them. And they realize, you know, we just spent a year and a half building this, this set of tools. Now do we have to spend another year building a whole bunch of other ones before we actually bring it, <laughs> bring it to scale? So one of the things that's really been impressing me lately is there are lots and lots of platforms to help you on those initial stages user management platforms, pricing platforms, you know, Stripe and all these other things. So I'm starting to see more and more, especially startups say, you know what? In the beginning, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let somebody else handle that. Somebody else is gonna do my user management. Somebody else is gonna do my billing. Someone else is gonna do my account management. And if it scales to the point where it's important to me, then I can bring that in house. So I love that attitude. To me, it reminds me, you know, uh, Tom and Mary Poppendiek, the people who brought lean uh, mm -hmm. to the software movement. One of the things that I've heard Mary say over and over again is put off decisions to the last responsible moment, right? Don't decide ahead of time. Again, it's like, don't over-engineer, right? So now I'm seeing these uh, startup companies say, you know what, I'll let somebody else handle billing. I'll let somebody else handle user management. Uh, and I can decide later if I want to take that on but don't take it on right away. So I think again, focus on your core, focus on your product and try to farm out as much as you can for as long as it makes sense. And when it no longer makes sense, now maybe you've got some time to invest in it. That's the what I'm seeing people doing. Well, definitely. And same thing for us, when we think about our billing, you know, we go and, and look at Stripe, you know, and, and Stripe is also using APIs and it's just, it's this huge transitive uh, graph, which is interesting to think about. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that that's actually a, a really a really good way to think about it, isn't it? It it is this sort of constantly modifying, constantly growing graph. And I think one of the things, you know, one of the initial questions you had is like, what's changed? So much of what was about APIs when I first started doing this was all craft, it was all custom, bespoke everything, right? I'm going to create this API. You're going to create a client for the API. We're really happy. And more and more, as every year goes by, we're starting to sort of put ourselves some distance from that custom build, custom build, custom build. And all credit card payments, uh, payment, payment management is a great example of that. We've had that as an automated service for 20 years or more. Before APIs were popular, ATMs were working just great, right? Yeah. So that's a network of systems that interact with each other. You can plop an ATM down anywhere, plug it into the network. It already knows how to talk because all the standards and all the, all the processes are there. The business model is there for, for taking percentages, for impressed cash, all these other things. So that's a very mature network, it's like 40 years old at least network of machinery. That's at least from, maybe it's from the 60s, right? <laughs> um, so, so that's a very mature network of services that have a built, pre-built APIs that carry the right information. We're just getting to that stage where we can say, I wanna plug into Stripe or I wanna plug into somebody else or I wanna plug into this user management piece. We're not quite at the stage where I can just plop a service down anywhere in the middle of the value chain and everybody automatically works and it's all about product management. There's still a lot of engineering, but I think we're getting closer. And that to me is very exciting because that transforms this business from this custom built engineering exercise to this product focused kind of, you know, consumer driven uh, enterprise. And I think that's going to be really, really powerful way to build uh, businesses in the future. Oh, really great to hear that. And, you know, there's a huge impact with APIs and stuff like no code solutions, integration platforms, really curious to see, you know, where that goes in the future and, and how is API changing that or, or driving that? Yeah, um, you know, I hear a lot about low code and no code. Again, it kind of goes in cycles, right? If you've been in this long <laughs> enough and you don't see my gray hairs because I shaved, but um, you start to see this sort of the same cycles again. I think uh, I'm seeing RPA is coming up again, this uh, process automation stuff, yep. RPA plus AI. That's sort of like RPA 3.0 <laughs> or something like that. So I think we go through these cycles over and over again. And to me, it's very encouraging. It's not discouraging at all. I think we discover I can automate some more. I can safely automate another part of this. Automation brings, uh, brings the, the project into focus in terms of like cost management, in terms of quality control. You know, um, the whole idea of a lot of, a lot of our automation processing that we do in Lean really comes from the, the desire to have TQM, to, you know, total quality management, this notion of doing the same thing every time, the whole idea of DevOps, of, of, of scripting all this is so that every time I do a build, it's gonna be dependably exactly the same. So parts that we can automate uh, help us focus on the parts that need creative intervention, right? Um, I don't think we'll ever do a good job of automating design because design is where we interact as humans, design whether it's API first or developer first or consumer first, but we can automate an awful lot of the connectors. We can automate an awful lot of the value chain that delivers from A to B. And I think that's where I'm gonna see, we're gonna see a lot of this. Low code and no code now to me often is getting rid of the, of the fiddly engineering bits so I can focus on the consumer, so I can focus on inputs and outputs, targets, uh, where I want this information to appear, how I wanna modify this information for my target audience. And to me, that's super exciting. Oh, definitely, especially even at a enterprise, right? We're seeing a lot of non-engineers and non-technical people, you know, experiment with APIs. You know, I think even Postman released a report showing that the uh, you know, majority of folks now uh, are, are non-technical, right? But they're still familiar with APIs or playing around with them. But what's preventing adoption, you know, widespread adoption at an enterprise by business teams? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not really sure. That's that's an excellent question. I. Um, I think we're, we're sort of on the cusp of a lot of this automation, but it's not easy. Think about the way the spreadsheet changed offices in the 80s and 90s, right? <laughs> it changed offices in a fundamental way. Think about just the way, uh, uh, you know, word, uh, you know, 
documentation, word processing, and all that other kind of stuff changed offices. We used to have lots of staff that were basically, they were typists and editors, and uh, they answered the phone, and then they were sort of like, we, you know, I worked as, a, as, a, as an accountant for a while. We, you know, we're counting numbers, we're bean counters, we were doing all these things manually. Spreadsheets and word processing and, you know, all that kind of stuff completely removed that and changed the office. We're not at that sort of level of change yet for APIs. It's not quite automating it yet. You definitely don't have to have a CS degree anymore to, to actually consume an API, but you still have to know an awful lot of programming. I don't have to know any programming to do a spreadsheet, to do word processing or anything like that. Think of it this way. If the way word processes worked is I had to sort of set up you know, some configuration and some other things before I wrote the document, that's kind of what APIs are now. I have to do some configuration and set a few other things, and then I can finally maybe start working. But with word processors and spreadsheets and, and you know, slideshows and stuff like that, I don't have to do any of that. That's all done for me. Magic happens behind the scenes. So we're not quite at the magic stage yet. So I think what's holding us back is working through that process to, to continue to lower the bar, make it lower and lower and lower so that we can make productivity higher and higher and higher. That's a super challenging thing, but I think that's really, if I think about what's happening in the next few years, I think that's really the focus. Well, it is definitely a really challenging uh, uh, task. And, and we are seeing a lot more product managers who are shipping APIs these days, thinking about it from both a technical standpoint, but also for the non-technical users. How do they get up and running with you know, their API platform or, or API products as quick as possible? But this brings up a, a different story, right? Or a different point. You know, if I am shipping that MVP that is an API product, uh, you know, what are some of the metrics or, or KPIs that I should be thinking about? And how does that change over time uh, throughout the API lifecycle? Yeah, um, I talked about this in API traffic management, a little book I did for O'Reilly. Uh, and, you know, you got KPIs and OKRs that kind of kind of balance against each other. OKRs are, again, are, are another thing from Intel. And, uh, <laughs> and, and this idea of, of what, are you, what are your key objectives uh, versus what are your key measurements, right? So um, I think of objectives in the way you kind of measure as sort of a sort of a, a triangle. You've got the sort of machine infrastructure kinds of metrics. How do you manage? What are your objectives for just stability at the infrastructure level? You've got the sort of the software processing workflow kinds of aspects of things. How do I actually use infrastructure to solve immediate business problems? Um, and there's a different set of metrics for that. And then you've got actually the real business, the real business independent of electronics, whether you're, you know, shipping containers or, or, or shipping software, you've got a, a real business set. And each one of those has their own sort of goals and metrics. So, you know, from the, from the infra side, which I think we sort of know the most, I, I'm really familiar with Google's, uh, the, what they call the, uh, there's, there's use, red, and let's, like these sort of these acronyms, right? So latency errors, traffic, and saturation is kind of what Google talks about an awful lot in their you know, SRE program and, and their engineering of, this, of site reliability. So you're basically talking about latency, how long does it take, errors, how many errors are, am I producing or am I running on? What's the overall traffic? Where's traffic good? Where's traffic bad? And what's the saturation of, of my system? Am I at a point where I'm gonna break if I don't you know, do something more? So, from an infrastructure, I think that's probably some really good metrics. And we're pretty, we're really good at this, right? We've got all sorts of metrics built into every box, every operating system, every machine, where we can kind of monitor that. Now, when you move to the business side or to the uh, sort of the, the software side, the process side, we're getting pretty darn good at that. This is sort of like, you know, your, your, your example, your company is a great example of how we can start to say, you know, what is my web traffic? You know, what are my requests? What's going on at the gateway and all these other things like this. These are really key elements to the story. So now I wanna figure out what are my entry points? What are my exit points? What are my dwell times? Things that talk about my software. How's my software doing? Am I doing a lot of, uh, doing a lot of closed transactions? Am I doing, uh, a, have, do I have a lot of abandoned shopping carts? Things like that. These are sort of key metrics that I think most of us are familiar with as well. And they're very custom to the software we build. Uh, finally, there's the real business. You know, in the business, the metrics have been the same for, for centuries. 
we've got you know cash flow, we've got uh, revenue, we've got productivity, we've got people. How long does it take me to get from A to B? How long does it take me to put a new feature into the system? That's my lead time in terms of features, in terms of product management. So I think there's, there are cases for each one of those. For those of us who work in, the, in that sort of middleware, that business process space, I have to know what's important to helping the business succeed, helping to their bottom line, helping the revenue, helping the productivity. Uh, from the business standpoint, I've got to make sure I communicate to everyone those key elements that are super, super important. Um, so I think it really varies uh, all three of these. We know about the infrastructure. We need to get very, to me, very introspective. We need to add a lot of observability to that uh, middleware side, to that business, to that uh, software process side. And then we need to get business go doing a better job of communicating that back to the rest of the group. Those are the challenges that I think I see in that space. No, really like how you're looking at them from different uh, uh, use cases and, and different teams that might need to access somewhat similar information, but also different. Uh, yeah. When it comes to stuff like API observability, you know, we've seen a lot of different terminology recently. We have monitoring, observability, we got analytics. What is all this and, and, and how would you compare them? <laughs> yeah, um, we've had some interesting threads, right? Because I think, I think uh, uh, we've talked about a little bit this online about observability and monitoring and I get these sort of answers like, well, that's about asking the difference between data and information. It's like everybody's got these <laughs> sort of high-handed kind of approaches to it. But um, I think really when it gets down to it, if you just think about sort of the whole history of observability comes from systems control, control systems, which really comes from the whole idea of so much of our IT technology has come out of what we were doing in the space program in the 60s, right? They were trying to figure out how do I understand what's going on inside a system? How do I understand what's going on inside uh, this complex software, this dynamic system that plays back and forth? So to me, when I say observability, I'm really talking about the ability to observe, the ability to see. And, and that means um, I'm adding a lot of sort of telemetrics, uh, telemetry inside software of the kind of stuff we were talking about. How many people hit this function? How many people have closed a cart? How many people have initialized a document? How many people have approved a meaningful thing? And then trying to observe that in some sort of consistent way. Um, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of talk uh, about uh, 50, 60 years ago about checklist culture, the notion of I learned through a checklist. And a lot of what we do in, in DevOps today is really based on checklist culture. Go through the list. You're on red here, you're on green here. What I'm seeing more and more of in the last several years is dashboard culture. So it's not just that we're doing things, we're seeing things. So I see all these big dashboards when somebody, uh, you know, when I go into their office, their main, their main room tells them exactly what's going on. That's observability. So observability is making it possible to kind of infer things uh, from uh, information you're getting out and, uh, or data you're getting out. And I think that's where that sort of data and information thing is. Shorthand, my logic, usually monitoring is talking about that sort of infrastructure sort of element. That's just my shorthand for it. Observability is often talking about what's going on in that, in that second group I mentioned, which is business process. Um, but especially for super large organizations like Google and Facebook and Microsoft and AWS, they need a ton of observability on their infrastructure, right? Because that's what they're selling. So they have to know the health of their infrastructure, what, what changes over time. Now, what I like to see, and I'm seeing some of this with the new talk of AI ops, right? This idea of artificial intelligence ops is turning the information you're getting at observability levels into action, right? So often the way we do monitoring, the way we do observability today is, is a, a light goes off and some human has to do something. She's got to figure out what's going on, start up another machine or solve a problem. What I want to see more and more of is automating the solution. So when things get out of balance, you know, you have this sort of autonomic nature of things. We're kind of working on balance. When they get out of balance, the system automatically spins things up. And now we can do some of that today, right? That's kind of what a lot of cluster management is all about, setting metrics and then letting people automatically spin things up and spin things down. 
So I think observability for us really needs to be leading to that sort of action-oriented moment where now you're, you're actually creating information that, that can be acted upon, and if possible, acted upon by machines rather than people. That's the way I think about it. Really love that uh, breakdown between monitoring and observability. Uh, for us, you know, one thing we've been noticing a lot of is, is how you attach that user component, that customer component to understand who is accessing it, uh, how are they accessing your API, when you think about stuff like number of transactions. Um, but this brings up a whole different point, which is around API ops. And, and what does it mean to have a good API ops strategy? What are the various components? Is observability part of it? Is there something else? You know, I'm not really, really sure. I'm going to turn this back and say, do you, I mean, what does that mean to you? API ops, what, what kind of world is that for you? Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm just starting to understand this and I don't really have a good sense of what's going on. Do you guys have a kind of an API ops approach right now? And, and if so, what, what does that sort of mean for you? No, for flip us, right you know, around. No, definitely. <laughs> it's still, you know, in our belief, an evolving category, but, you know, just as, as we talk about API products, you know, what are all the different operational aspects required to deliver, uh, uh, serve that API at scale, and then also deprecate or, or, or sunset an API, right? That's where you start talking about stuff like API lifecycle, when it comes to API ops itself, you have things like observability, API security, you know, stuff like API management. Um, you might add some other components around, you know, billing. You know, how do you actually ensure folks are within their tier or, or not exceeding rate limits? Um, so many different components around API ops. Just like when we think about a website, you know, what does it mean to have DevOps or or, or, or some type of yeah. you know IT infrastructure? Uh, that that actually makes makes a lot of sense. So for you and in, in, in your organization, at least. There are all the things around operating, managing, continuing, maintaining. It's, it's sort of the after release kind of moment, right? There's a whole environment, there's a whole set of things that you've got to deal with uh, after, you, after the API has been created, after the API has been successfully built, all the way to, like you say, the idea of, of deprecation or modification or change over time. You know, I think this, is, this goes back to just uh, plain software knowledge, SDLC, right? We all know that, uh, what's the adage? 80% uh, of the effort and cost uh, on software is actually spent after release, not before. Yep. It's in the maintenance, right? And so I think this idea of API ops is probably you know, trying to get a handle on what are these categories? What are these things that I have to deal with? And I think APIs are a lot more challenging than most software that's released because often APIs uh, are generating dependencies. There are people who depend on you. They're, they're making changes or having unhealthy aspects to the system or, or lots of management choices can affect people that you've never met. So it's, it's a more complex, it's a more dynamic system, which I think leads back to that sort of systems control theory and stuff that we were talking about earlier. Definitely, and we've seen this even within our own customer base or, or people we talk to where you know, if you're deploying a website, you know, there's one way to log in, you know, maybe you have a couple of different login methods. When you deploy API, you really have no control over the different integrations and, and use cases they might use that API for. So how do you actually uh, reduce that scope and ensure that you, know, you don't have some crazy uh, uh, performance issue or, or something that's going to bring down your entire system? Yeah, I, you know, a phrase that I use quite a bit is, especially in this API space, um, essentially you're building something uh, to be used by people you will never meet to solve <laughs> problems you've never thought of, right? That's kind of what an API is. People are going to use this in all sorts of crazy ways. It's, what is it? It's Hiram's law, Hiram Wright from Google. Hiram's law is, is no matter what promise you make, every single aspect of your, of your API is going to be a fatal dependency for someone. Like even changing the things that you said might change is going to upset someone, right? So, um, there, there, is a huge, there is a huge set of challenges in this space. And I think rather than, you know, if I think about broader systems theory, systems thinking, Donella Meadows kind of thinking, uh, what you do is you don't prevent other people from doing things, you survive other people doing things, right? Um, uh, complex systems keep running even in failure mode. Even when parts of them aren't working properly, they stay up and running somehow. So designing a great API environment uh, is really designing a system that uh, 
keeps running even if people make mistakes along the way. And eventually, especially you think about security, you think about the way credit card management and money management, money movement works, you actually start to protect yourself against malicious actions or you know, unexpected actions of some type. So you've got these various levels. So you really, you have to sort of design in early this resiliency um, that, that if something bad happens, we're still gonna be okay. And you have to defend yourself against failures that you might see along the way. One of the things that I love this book, it's called Release It by Michael Nygaard. Michael has this uh, approach about capability patterns and stability patterns. Capability patterns help you solve problems. Stability patterns help you survive them, right? And he's got a whole series, I think there's seven or eight of them. So I think when you architect and design and start to build your own APIs, you're engaged in this process of creating a resilient sort of self-reliant uh, kind of model, which is again, super challenging, but I think the way we've seen people like AWS and Google and these Microsoft, these large companies, that's what they're doing. And they, they do a pretty good job at it for the most part. Yeah, and this actually re really brings up an a interesting point, especially when we think about APIs, from rate limits to circuit breakers and, and throttling and such. Uh, sometimes it's easier to deploy when, you, when your API is public, right? Because it is exposed to the internet. People might abuse it or, or whether it's intentional or unintentional. But what about internal APIs? Do you have the same processes? Is it different? Sometimes you can create these like artificial dependencies or, or think just because you have access to everything, right? Yeah, that's so, again, I'll go back to the AWS examples, right? Because they talk a lot about this idea that, that, oh, that uh, story about how Bezos told everybody you have to access through API, you can't get direct access to the database anymore, stuff like that. These are all attempts to sort of mimic that same distance that you have in the web uh, for internal use. Um, creating, uh, treating teams, one of the things I tell people, especially in large enterprises, is treat other uh, APIs as third-party products. Treat them like they're an external company. Um, you don't get to see inside, all you get to see is their interface. And I, you know, I have lots of organizations where they basically manage the interface through a repository, like an open API spec repository or an async API spec repository. And you really can't see past the interface. You don't know what their data model is. You don't know any of that. So that can, that can help you quite a bit. You can fall, when you're on the internal side, you can fall into these not realizing how much of a fatal dependency you have on somebody's data model or somebody's uh, you know, processing model. And if they change it, how bad it can become. So one of the first things I tell people when they uh, want to get their organization sort of to level up to be more of a microservice or more of an API kind of thing is to start putting distance between all of these other parts of the internal system. Treat the data services like you don't control them, you don't own them. Um, when you design a service, don't design the data model. Just say, I need the following, right? And let somebody else, let the data layer, this goes back to our layers, right? About foundations and middleware and UI. Um, let the data layer de decide that for you. Whether it's gonna be in a relational database, an object database, a document database, whether it's in one place or 10, whether it's hosted locally or externally, that's their problem. This is what I need you to give me. You start treating them all like externals and it turns out you start building in more of that resiliency and that, that self-reliance early on. It's not easy because so much of us uh, organizations I've worked in, their key efficiency, not their effectiveness, but their key efficiency is that they've already decided this decades ago and they don't have to decide it every day. So there's a new set of problems for them when they wanna create this sort of uh, inter, you know, interdependent platform. And that is that you got to start adding some distance, even if it's sort of like a fake distance. This really brings up a, a good point where, you know, you can't just go access the database. You can't, you know, you really do need those uh, uh, true limits, just like it is an external company in a way, as you mentioned. But, you know, this brings up a, a different uh, segue, which is around change management, right? Mm -hmm. You know, for these internal APIs, how do I handle that? How do I, you know, I need to deprecate a service. I need to get rid of something on a service. Um, is there any good practices that I should be following? Um, yeah, there's, there's a handful. And most of them, you know, have been, they're actually there for us to see 
through things like HTML and HTTP and TCP IP. Think about these, all of those have been around for 30, 40 for TCP IP cases, 50 years, right? And they still work, but there have been lots of changes to them. Um, and those changes all uh, operate on, on a few basic rules. And those rules are, are one of the things I talk about in my book is um, you can't take anything away. Once it's yep. there, it's there. You can't uh, change the meaning of something. You can't say this field used to mean the total number of users, now it means the to total number of pages. And every, every new change has to be done as an optional element. So you can't make a new requirement later on down the road. And that's the way HTTP and HTML and TCP have worked for decades. And that's what we can do too. So the first thing is you can't take it back. The way Werner Vogels talks about it is, is the API is forever, the code is not. Right? We tend to, tend to think about it the other way around a lot of times, at least I used to. Uh, but if you think of the API as forever, you're gonna, you're gonna do much better at it. But at the same time, you still need to do just what you talked about. You're gonna have to deprecate this someday. You know what? There's a reason we don't use Gopher as much as we used to. Right? <laughs> Nobody cares. So you've gotta face it, right? And that the way you do that is truly through deprecation, not just simply yanking somebody's spleen out you just stop using it, right? So you have to have you have to have a kind of a process. Um, and I, I I did I won't go through all of it. I did a short video that, that that's on my uh, my YouTube channel about that whole process. And essentially, what you're doing is when when you have to change something fundamental, when you really when you're going to have to break something, like there's a new regulation, you know, you're working in a regulated industry. What you do is you fork. You literally fork it. You know, now I've got this new thing that's never going to be backwards compatible, and it has to be managed separately. Uh, and so that's your first that's your first step along the way. So now you've got a branch somewhere, and everybody knows in open source projects you fork when you give up. You fork when you can't make things work anymore, and that that makes perfect sense. At some point, you're going to have to deprecate this and get rid of this in some way, and literally you're gonna to have to get people to move from one fork to another, or you're gonna to have to get people to go somewhere else and solve their problem in some other way. So you need to give people lead time, just like you do in any open source project or anything like that. And lead time, depending on the scope, depending on the reach, depending on how many people are involved, lead time could be years. Uh, Salesforce has this uh, process where they, they have a, a, a release every three months, every four months, and they're on release 42 or 43, and they support release back to release 22 or 23. They support about 20 releases, right? So they support years and years of this as people move forward. Eventually you'll get rid of it. Um, and what you do is like any good open source uh, project, you need to find somebody to take it over. Uh, you need to give up the code. If you don't care about this anymore, give up the code to your customers and say, you know what, you could run this yourself. If you can't give up the code because there's intellectual property involved and stuff like that, it gets a little messy, give up the interface, document the interface, publish the open API spec or the async API or the WSDL or whatever, and give it to everyone in the world and say, you know what, you could run one of these two. And then eventually, if somebody has data that they've been storing with you, you got to give them a chance to recover their data, give them some exit plan, some checkout option, some takeaway. And then finally, put the interface up and just redirect it to, uh, there's, a, there's a thing in HTTP, if it's an HTTP interface called 410-GONE, which is not only is it not here, it's never gonna come back. So go find something else. So often I'll arrange a 410-GONE with a pointer to the open source project or a pointer to the uh, interface or the pointer to the alternate service or something like that. So there's definitely a process and it's just like any other product. Think about, think about tires, think about wheels, think about auto parts. We have the same thing going on. You can get an auto part for a 1957 Chevy. Somebody's got it somewhere, right? They're not making them anymore, but there's pointers to where they're doing it. And that's the way we have to do it, uh, the same in the IT space. How do you make sure that you don't have any issues though? You know, since COVID hit, we've seen record, place, uh, record pace of uh, re-platforming, moving to you know, new gateways and, and cloud solutions. Uh, but you know, it's easy to make a human error, right? And, and shut oh. off the service too early. Yep, it definitely, there's definitely that, that challenge to do that. I think Twitter's gone through this a couple of times, right? Where they would tell people, 
we're going to shut off our service in the first of the year. I think they did this, went through this about four years ago. I used to document it. And they get to the end of the year. And what they do is they sort of test, like turn it off for an hour to see if anything breaks. That's literally what you're kind of stuck doing. And, and sometimes you're going to run into that. I can, I can design my system to be resilient, uh, but I can't design your system to be resilient, right? So, so there's definitely problems. There are definitely cases just like the 57 Chevy where I'm going to have to actually craft this part on my own because nobody offers it anymore. We're going to have, you're always going to run into those kinds of things. But I think this process of communicating, this is going to, we're, we're going to deprecate this. Um, and then having these moments where people can sort of test out things, they can, they can split, you can go to another version. If you're running a gateway service, you know if you have traffic, right? You know if you have traffic on the endpoints you're about to deprecate or the endpoints you want to close down. So you are in full control, at least on the inbound side of what's going on. So you can start to communicate with others. Now it's tougher in an anonymous world, like an open source project. Um, but you know there are steps along the way that you can do. You'll never be foolproof, right? Fools are too damned ingenious. They always come up with new ways to, to mess us up. But you can give a lot of lead time and then you can follow that kind of responsible deprecation model, which at least gives people another option along the way. That's what, that's what I suggest anyway. I love that, especially when it comes to deprecation. It's a, a pain we're very close to uh, with here at Mosa, just thinking about that process and automating the end-to-end the -end flow. Uh, you know, just as my uh, follow-up question or, or last question, what are some recommendations that you, you know, want to give to, you know, latest generation product managers in terms of what they should be reading, studying, uh, uh, and, and uh, following up on? Wow. So, so here's, I, I, I can offer this. I can tell you what I'm, reading and what I'm sort of seeing. And I think if you're a good product manager, this sort of gives you some ideas. I'm going to be honest with you. I am not a very good product manager. I often get lost in the weeds. I get lost in the technical details. But good product managers can usually find something in my weeds that can be powerful. I'm seeing a lot of this focus on this new distance, this new automation approach. And I think that's going to affect us a lot, whether you call it RPA 3.0, you call it AI ops or, or all these kinds of things. It's been going on for quite a while, but it, again, to use this latest pandemic as an example, a lot of this has been accelerated over the last year. This idea of how can I automate more, put a distance between myself and the system. So people are gonna be looking for these kinds of low code, no code. They're gonna be looking for the ability to you know, link things together. They're gonna be looking for more and more opportunity to lower the bar. I'm seeing some very creative work from the idea of actually monitoring your API traffic in order to create for you things like open API documents and documentation automatically, using that as a validator tools. I've got organizations that have very complex uh, approval systems. You have to have an open API spec to get approved to get onto the gateway. Now they're using these AI tools to actually see if, you're, if your running service complies to that uh, set of specs that you've submitted to the registry. So that's an idea of, of using intelligence to kind of put some distance and create some more resilient and stable systems. There's, there's a company in the Czech Republic, I can't remember the name right now, um, that is actually working on client and server applications that actually negotiate in real time, that actually figure out, oh, you're using this version of the API, uh, here's the API open, uh, API spec. I'm going to adjust my calls from puts to patch. You're going to accept these inputs now. So this is, again, putting distance and creating more resilience in automation. So it isn't just generating code. It's actually in real time adjusting these negotiated elements. So I'm seeing more and more of that. So that's automation on a different level. At the side of uh, observability and, and, and management, I'm seeing so much more focus and so many more questions on what's observable and what's not and how to turn it into action with like we talked about before. So I think all of that's going to be really, really key. And then finally, I think more than anything else, and you've observed, you, you mentioned this in the, in the discussion, people who are uh, product managers, business leaders, trying to solve their own problems, 
are looking more and more to uh, pre-built software, no code or low code software where I can kind of link things together. And I'm starting to see more people talk in the API space about trying to make API construction and API release more of a visual or visceral experience, not, not a typing experience anymore. So I'm seeing more visual tools, more connecting tools. And to me, that's, that's another thing that's gonna be really, really important. When you start to lower the barrier for making connections, you start to increase the possibility of having more connections. Now I can have more customers. Now I can send more information over the wire for the same amount of money that I used to build one single bespoke app. So I think if anything else, I think the product space is gonna go more towards this automation, more towards uh, uh, sort of self-healing or self-reliance. And that means we're getting closer to that kind of real value chain automation where I could plop down uh, my SaaS product in the middle of a value chain without disrupting it, add value, and get some return in the exchange. And I, that would be a fantastic new, new set of products and services that you can just automatically plug and play. I would love to see it. And then uh, you can actually decide which API you want to go with based off of pricing, maybe in real time. We'll see. <laughs> absolutely. Ab absolutely. You know, no, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, Google has a system. Their ad, their ad bidding system is totally yeah. hypermedia-driven robots. Like, I'll bid this, I'll bid that. And when I was working, I'll just give you, to give you the example, years and years ago, I was working in managing telephone switches. And, and there were all sorts of plans for doing what were called short haul services or hardline services between cities. Uh, and I could get different prices and different, uh, different discounts based on time of day and distance. So I would write a program that said, if somebody wants to call uh, 100 miles away, I'm gonna use this service because I have this rate. Because it's a Saturday, I'm gonna use this service. But the Friday, I'm gonna use this service. So we're gonna do just what you said. Eventually, we're all gonna have the same interfaces that work the same way. I'm gonna be able to start to, to actually make connections based on value, based on the value, the price and the value to me. So the exchange is gonna be super, super important. And we can start focusing on quality delivery and convenience and all the other things in all sorts of other markets. That's gonna be the same for APIs as well. Well, really glad to hear, and thank you for uh, joining us today on our podcast, Mike. I had a great time talking with you, Derek. I hope we talk again soon. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye.